The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Some of the most painful and certainly the hardest lessons that we learn in life are those learned when we experience illness, personal illness, or we see loved ones go through illness or death. Those are hard lessons that we learn during those times. But for the Christian, suffering has a unique meaning. For God's people, suffering always has behind it God's design of love. All suffering has behind it God's design of love for the Christian. It isn't just that God loves us in the suffering. It's that suffering is a means of God loving us. I wonder if you believe that. I hope you do by the end of this sermon. Paul writes in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things includes cancer and colds, Parkinson's and parasitic diseases, miscarriages and muscular dystrophy, Lyme's disease and Legionnaire's disease. For those who trust in Christ, all things are working together for good. But in the midst of pain, in the midst of the suffering, it can be hard to think that anything good could come of it. And that's why in seasons where you're not in pain, or maybe just in less pain, in those seasons, you need the ballast of God's Word to fill the bottom of your soul so that when the winds of adversity and trials come, your boat, your soul doesn't tip over. That's what chapter 11 does for us. As we come to chapter 11 in the Gospel of John, we meet a group of people who were in one of the hardest and darkest moments of their lives. They were in anguish. They were grieving. But from this story, Jesus teaches us important lessons on love in illness and death. Important lessons on love in illness and death. Chapter 11 is a resurrection story. 
It's the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And like all resurrection stories, it begins with sadness, necessarily so, and ends with hope and joy. This chapter, chapter 11, is so rich in detail that it'll take us a few weeks to study all of it. And because of that, that I thought it would be helpful to you to have an outline of the story in your mind, to break up the story so that you could see the progress of the story and keep the chapter together. You could say that the story in chapter 11 unfolds in four scenes. Four scenes in chapter 11. Scene one is the death of Lazarus. That's verses 1 through 16. There we see that Lazarus has died and we see Jesus' response. Scene two is the sister's grief. That begins in verse 17 and goes through verse 32 in the middle of that paragraph. Lazarus has two sisters. He has the sister Mary. He has another sister, Martha. And each grieved the death of their brother, as you would imagine. And we'll see their responses to Jesus' arrival. Scene 3 begins in verse 33. It runs through verse 44. And that's the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus in a dramatic and surprising way. And many Jews were witnesses to it. And then the last scene, scene 4, beginning in verse 45 through the end of the chapter, is the response to the resurrection. Those who saw the resurrection, those who heard about the resurrection, responded in opposite ways. Some believed in Jesus, and some, when they saw Lazarus' resurrection, just wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Now this morning, we'll only get to the first scene and set the stage of the rest to come, but we'll find much comfort in this passage and much to consider. Let's begin reading in verse 1 through verse 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary of, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. In this passage, Jesus reveals that there are two purposes for the death of Lazarus. And by extension, there are two purposes that God is working in His people when we experience trials of our own, especially in illness and death. And as we go, we'll discover not only these two purposes that God has for us, in our trials, but we'll also discover practical lessons on God's love for us in illness and death that we can use in our own times of suffering. Now, the story begins with a dying man. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The dying man was Lazarus. And aside from what's in this chapter and in chapter 12, we know very little about him. He was just a certain man. A certain man. None of the other Gospels mention him. But his name was a common name in those days. The name means helped by God. So you can imagine why many parents would want to name their child Lazarus. It was actually a shortened form of the Hebrew name Eleazar. The back half of that, Eleazar, was morphed into Lazarus. And that's how the name came to be. Both names, again, mean helped by God. Which is... Amazing, because that's exactly what happens to Lazarus here in just a few moments in the story. Now, a different man with the same name is featured in the story Jesus told in Luke 16. You remember that story about the rich man and then there's other other poor man, this beggar. His name was Lazarus, but that's not the same Lazarus. Again, it was just a common name. This Lazarus of Bethany was not the one mentioned in Luke 16. This Lazarus had some unspecified illness. Often the gospel writers, when, when Jesus is going to heal somebody, specifies the illness. Uh, he had dropsy, or he was blind, or he uh, had some sort of paralysis. He was lame. But Lazarus's illness was not specified here, not identified. And surely the reason was, is that Jesus isn't going to heal him. And so it doesn't matter what his illness was. Whatever the illness, though, it was serious enough that it would result in death in short order. Now, he lived in this town called Bethany, along with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. There was more than one Bethany uh, in those days. This Bethany, if we look down to verse 18, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. To get to this Bethany, you went from the temple east, down the hill, across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and around the backside, that's two miles, and there is this town called Bethany. It was along the road road to Jericho which was the main route out of Jerusalem to Galilee. You might remember that the Jews didn't like to go through Samaria, even though that was a more direct route north to Galilee. So they went around Samaria so they wouldn't have to be around the Samaritans. 
And so they went through Jericho. Well, Bethany, this Bethany, was on the road to Jericho. Incidentally, this, uh, the town still exists today, and in Arabic, it's named after Lazarus. The name here, though, is Bethany, and it means house of poor. So perhaps that was a fitting description of the village population, at least at that, either at that time or sometime in the past, the house of poor. Again, Lazarus had two sisters who became well-known followers of Jesus, Mary and Martha. Mary was a very common uh, girl's name in those days, and the reason for it was that it was a derivative of the name Miriam. Miriam was Moses' sister, and so if you're going to pick a good Old Testament name, uh, you might just pick the name of the sister of one of the greatest men in all the Old Testament. So Mary, Miriam, very common word or name. Um, Many Jews wanted to name their daughters after the sister of Moses, so... In verse 2, the Apostle John distinguishes this Mary from all the other Marys that we're going to meet at the end of the John's Gospel. There will just be all kinds of Marys that we'll meet there. And so he identifies this Mary in verse 2 as the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with hair. Now, you might know that story, but what's interesting about John mentioning that story here in chapter 11 is that hasn't happened yet. It happens in chapter 12 where he gives the detail of the story. But this, evidently, this Mary was so well known among the early believers, and of course her stories in Mark and also in Matthew, it was so well known that uh, just uh, people knew who she was and say, okay, this, this is the Mary who is the brother of, as the sister of Lazarus. These sisters were believers in Jesus. They knew that Jesus could heal their brother. And so the sisters sent a messenger in verse 3. They sent a messenger to Jesus with this urgent message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. You can tell right away that they had a close relationship with Jesus. They loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. Their family was close with the Lord. Perhaps Jesus and his disciples even stayed at Lazarus' house when they came in and out of Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that they appealed to Jesus based on his love for Lazarus. They didn't say, Lazarus, the one whom you, who loves you, is ill. That was no doubt true as well. Rather, they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, you may have heard that the New Testament uses various words in the Greek for love, including phileo and agape love. Heard that? Yeah. And frankly, we can, we can make way too much of the differences between those two words. For the most part, phileo and agapao can be used interchangeably with basically no distinction. If there is a difference between the words, phileo emphasizes the love between friends and agapao emphasizes a divine love that God has for man. If there is a difference. 
But again, we shouldn't press the nuance of the words too far because they they both mean love. And if you try to distinguish these two words too much, you'll confuse yourself as you go through the book because they are essentially used interchangeably, which is a a feature of John's writing. He loves to use um, similar words, synonyms. But here the word is Phileo, Lord, he whom you love, Phileo, is ill. Jesus had a love for Lazarus that was the love between close friends. And the sister's message was worded not in a demand to get Jesus to come, but to inform Jesus, the one that you love, the one that you have affection for, that one, he is ill. But clearly they anticipated that Jesus would respond by coming right away. The messenger from Mary and Martha found Jesus, as it turns out, somewhere in and around another village named Bethany. In chapter 10, verse 40, it says Jesus went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And if we look back in chapter 1, verse 28, we find that the name of that place that John had been baptizing at first was Bethany. Well, that can't be the same Bethany because this Bethany that Jesus was at and where John was baptizing was beyond or across the Jordan. The Bethany that Lazarus lived in was two miles east of Jerusalem. Well, the Jordan River is further than two miles, so it's not the same Bethany. So Jesus is in this other little village called Bethany when he received word that Lazarus was ill in Bethany, the one near Jerusalem. And when he heard the message, he made a declaration about the purpose of Lazarus's illness that is reminiscent of what Jesus said about the man born blind in chapter 9. There, Jesus said that the man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, God made this man be born blind. And the reason that he was born blind was so that the works of God would be displayed in him decades later. That's the reason why the man was born blind at birth. So that by the power of God, people would see his power when Jesus opened his physical eyes and also see his power when Jesus opened Lazarus's spiritual eyes to see that Jesus was the Son of Man worthy to be worshipped. God's purpose in the man's disability was the glory of God. And in the same way, Jesus declares here in verse 4 that Lazarus's illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, it's impossible to know for certain. But it seems likely that Lazarus was already dead by the time the messenger found Jesus. And the reason that's likely is that when Jesus arrives to Bethany, when he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus has been in dead for four days. 
And we're going to see here in a moment that Jesus waits for two days. And if you allow one day for the messenger to reach Jesus and one day for Jesus to get from Bethany down to the other Bethany, that's four days. Now, if Lazarus has been dead for four days, it means that soon after the messenger left to find Jesus, Lazarus had died. But still, Jesus said that the illness would not lead to death. Lazarus would die, but that wouldn't be the final word. That wouldn't be the end of the story. The the end of the story is not Lazarus in the grave. And aren't you glad, Christian, that the end of the story for us is not the grave? It's not the end of the story for any who love Christ. The pallbearers were already gathering Lazarus' body. The sisters were already wailing by the time the messenger came to Jesus. The village was already in an upheaval, and yet there was a resurrection on its way. When Jesus heard the sisters' words from the messenger, He already knew what He was going to do. It was so certain that Jesus could make this, this bold pronouncement It does not lead to death. He was already dead. His body was cold. And Jesus says, this doesn't lead to death. And that's the same for us. There's a resurrection on its way for you. And for those who are in Christ, the resurrection will lead to eternal life. So whether it's Lazarus' death or it's your death or the death of a loved one in Christ, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the purpose of God in your suffering. So that God would be glorified. The point of Lazarus' death was the glory of God. His death was mainly about God. It was designed to magnify Jesus Christ. Who do you think was overseeing his sickness in the first place? That'd be God. God providentially overseeing the sickness of Lazarus in the first place. And yet, the whole process was designed to glorify God. The tears flowed down Mary and Martha's cheeks, and I'm sure they must have flowed like rivers. But those tears of sadness would be turned to tears of joy when Jesus came to the one he loved. And when He came and resurrected Lazarus, the Son of God would be glorified such that we are still talking about it today. And don't doubt for a second, Christian, that when God resurrects you from the death, dust, all of heaven will be praising the name of Jesus for eternity. All of heaven will be talking about your resurrection for eternity and praising the name of Jesus. Now, the story is about to take an unexpected turn. But before it does, John prepares you to understand Jesus' actions with these important words in verse 5. He's setting you up because it's going to take a wild turn in verse 6. But before you get to verse 6, you have to understand the background of verse 5. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, this time the word for love is agapao, which with perhaps the nuance of divine, God's divine love for his own. But everything that Jesus would do here would be because he loved them. You have to understand that Jesus' next actions are actions of love. He loved each of them. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. And so what Jesus is about ready to do is an act of love. But what he did next didn't look like love. Verse 6, So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Don't miss that word, so. It means, therefore. It indicates Jesus' design and intention behind staying put. He loved them, therefore, he stayed where he was for two days. If Lazarus wasn't dead by the time the messenger arrived, he certainly would be dead while Jesus delayed in coming. And even if Lazarus was already dead when the messenger found Jesus, the Jews didn't embalm. So the two days would be long enough for decay to set in. The two other times that Jesus raises somebody from the dead, the widow's son at Nain and the 12-year-old girl, those two other times, he resurrected them essentially immediately after they died. But here, Jesus waits for decay to set in. Yet it was love for him to stay put. Now, how was it love for him not to come to, to Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Certainly, if we've been reading closely in the Gospel of John we would say that Jesus could have healed Lazarus from afar. We've read in chapter 4 that Jesus actually healed an official's son who was located in another far-off city. Jesus healed from a long distance. He wasn't even then. doesn't even say that he knew the official's son. And somehow, from Cana, he was able to heal an official's son somewhere else. We've read in chapter 1 that Jesus knew the condition of Nathanael before he even met him. He didn't need to be physically present with Nathanael to know Nathanael. He knew Nathanael up on the hill somewhere before he ever saw him. So, Jesus could have healed Lazarus. from right where he was, even without the sister's message. But he didn't, and he didn't come. And John says that Jesus didn't come because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. How is this love? One of the lessons that we learn about God's love in this story is that God's love doesn't always look the way we think it should love. Look. 
In fact, his, his love for us, God's love for us, is often unrecognizable at first. We have ways that we think that love should look. But God is not bound to show His love for us in ways that our feeble brains can expect. Isn't it possible that God could show His love for you in ways that are beyond your imagination and beyond your expectation? Who would have dreamed God's love demonstrated on the cross? And yet, in that very way, God has shown us His supreme love. So one of the ways that God loves us is by showing us His glory. And many times that glory is seen most clearly in pain and suffering. He loves us by putting on display His power and mercy in our times of desperate need. We often think that pain is the absence of God's love. But what Jesus is showing us here is not that pain is the absence of God's love, but that pain is one means by which God loves us if we are in Christ. By staying put, Jesus would show the disciples His glory in resurrecting their friend. And that's one of the purposes of our pain. So in love, He waited two days And only then was it time to head to Bethany to perform the miracle. He said in verse 7, let us go to Judea. Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem, was in Judea. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? The disciples didn't seem to understand that Jesus always had the intention of going back to Judea. He had told them. This three-month gap between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, uh, you can read about it, at least the likely stories of it, in Luke chapter uh, 15 and 16 and 17, what he was doing. And he told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem. And yet, they're still shocked that he would do it. From their perspective, it was reasonable to stay put. They didn't seem to be questioning Jesus' love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. From their perspective, it was reasonable to stay put. After all, why go to an area where the Jews had tried to kill him? Only three months or so before, Jesus had been in Judea at the end of chapter 10, where the Jews tried to stone him and arrest him. But Jesus responded with what was likely a common proverb during the day. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Now they knew, of course, that the daylight changed as the seasons changed. But this was a proverb. 
Essentially, the day consisted of 12 hours and the night consisted of 12 hours. The idea here is that the day is a fixed period of time. The day is a fixed period of time. The sun rises and the sun sets and it's all on God's ordained schedule. It's a fixed schedule that God creates. You, you can't make the day any longer and you can't, your enemies can't make the day any shorter. The day is fixed. And so Jesus was saying in the same way, the length of time of His ministry was fixed. As long as it was figuratively the daytime of His ministry, He couldn't be harmed. And as it turns out, it was late in the day of His ministry. The shadow of the cross by now was growing long as the sun began to set in His ministry. Not many days later from chapter 11, He'd be hanging on a cross. Not many days. We're almost to the Passion Week. By chapter 13, we're in the Passion Week. But until the day was gone, his hour was not yet and he had ministry to do. So he, could, he wasn't afraid to go back into Judea. There's 12 hours in the day. It's still daylight. As long as the Father has something for me to do, I cannot be harmed. I won't be killed. He was on the Father's timetable. Every movement of His was orchestrated. Everything He did was by the plan of the Father. He said in chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. So everything Jesus was doing was on the divine timetable of the Father. There is also a lesson for the disciples in this. Verse 9, If anyone walks in the day... He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. More so than today, uh, people worked while it was daylight. They started working when the sun rose. They ended work for the most part when the sun set. And at night, they stopped working because the light wasn't in them. The light was out there in the world by the sun. And so they didn't want to hurt themselves. They didn't want to stumble in the middle of the night. So they stopped working for the most part. And so to his disciples, this was a call. Verse 9 was a call to use what time they had to do the will of God. Right now, for the disciples, it was daylight. And so they must do the ministry while it was daylight. Jesus said something similar in chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Many of these disciples would be, would be captured and killed. But while they had the opportunity, they were to make the most of it for God's glory. And to those who don't trust in Christ, Jesus' message is a warning. Those who reject the light of the world will walk in the dark and stumble in their sin because the light of Jesus is not in them. So while you have the opportunity, don't reject Jesus. While you have the opportunity, receive Jesus and be saved so that the light is in you and you don't stumble into hell. Then Jesus further explained why he was going to Judea. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, notice that Jesus called Lazarus our friend. 
The disciples knew Him. The disciples loved Him. They were all friends. They were all familiar with each other. And up to this point, the disciples weren't aware that Lazarus was dead. Up to this point, they thought he was only sick. And so that's why the disciples replied in verse 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, there's no reason for us to go to Judea if all he needs is just a little rest to get better. No reason for us to risk our lives when Lazarus is going to recover with just a little sleep. So John comments, verse 13, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus wasn't being deceptive in his speech. It was just a gentle way to refer to his death. Sleep is an apt metaphor because Lazarus' death wasn't permanent. Just like you go to sleep at night and it's temporary, you wake up the next morning. In the same way, Lazarus' death was temporary. And that's why Paul takes up that same kind of language. Saying that we will at one point sleep, but then we'll be alive. When a believer dies, they go immediately into the conscious presence of Jesus. It's not, a, not, not like sleeping that you can't remember the night before. You will remember every moment between the time you die and the time your body rises from the grave and your soul is united with a resurrected body. You'll remember every moment of it. You'll remember every moment in the presence of Jesus. But there's a sense in which your body is asleep. That is, it's temporary. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. But because they were slow to understand, verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm sure the disciples were stunned by Jesus' words. They, they finally understood, first of all, that Lazarus was dead. And they also realized, second of all, that Jesus was going to Judea regardless of the perceived risk. But then there's a third reason why they would be stunned by Jesus' words. It's that he says he was glad. He's glad that Lazarus died and that he wasn't there to heal him. Why was Jesus glad he wasn't there to heal him? And the reason was that this would be the way that they would believe in him. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now, Jesus doesn't mean that the disciples at this point weren't believing in him. By this time, all the, the disciples were believers except for Judas. He meant that by not healing Lazarus, but instead waiting to resurrect him, their belief in him would grow. That is, trust in Jesus is not a static thing. Yes, there's a point in time in which you believe in Jesus, and at that moment you are justified before God and are saved. But faith can grow. Faith can increase. And so he's telling his disciples that by Lazarus dying, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him in the moment 
Because if I didn't heal him, you might definitely think that wasn't love. But also, if I did heal him, you wouldn't see and be a witness to my resurrection power. And your faith wouldn't grow like it would in this situation. So not only was Lazarus' death for the glory of God, but a second purpose in it was the growth of the disciples' faith. And God means for your trials too. Your sicknesses, even the death of loved ones, He means for those to be means of increased faith, to cause you to trust in Him more. God thinks about faith in a way that we often don't. To Him, faith is so valuable that it's more valuable than a good life in this world. We orient our lives in so many ways, some of them subtle, some of them major, in order to have a good life in this world. A nice house, a nice car, nice vacations, nice spouse, nice kids who go to nice schools, where you work at a nice job, and everything's nice, and everything's good. And then, a nice retirement, and hopefully a nice death when the time comes. Everything oriented to a good life. But to God, faith is more viable than a good life, so He makes even our pain a means of growing our trust in Him. And we'll do what it takes, even through pain, even through affliction, so that your faith will grow. He values faith so much. He will knock out the crutches that you so depend on for a good life so that you will trust in Him more. The greatest protection you can have in this world that wounds is strong, steely faith. And so because God loves you, He will do what it takes so that your faith will increase. And if we have a faith of steel, Paul calls a shield of faith, then we can endure many hardships. That's how much God loves you. He will do what it takes to increase your faith so that you have a shield of faith from the hardships that are surely to come. Because all of life won't be good. Psalm 18, 29. It's a wonderful verse about the Lord giving us a kind of faith that shields. The psalmist says, By you, God, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. Substantial trials, substantial obstacles to a good life. The troops are bearing down on you. But by you, God, I can run (laughs) against, not away. I can run toward, I run run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. So by increasing our faith, even through pain, He protects us from the days ahead. And this is love. We know that one of the hardest acts of faith is to wait on Jesus. True? 
It's hard to wait on Jesus. And perhaps you feel like right now you're, you're like Mary and Martha and you've sent your messengers of prayer to heaven and you haven't heard back from Jesus. But go on and wait for Jesus. Go on and wait for Jesus. Because what happened for Mary and Martha was when the resurrection came, all was made plain. And all will be made plain at the resurrection. The the resurrection will bring God's purposes to light. And in the meantime, if if God gives you a deeper faith in Him and a closer walk with Him, then one day, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but one day you will count all the pain that you endured worth it because it was achieving for you a weight of glory. No Christian in heaven will ever accuse God of not loving them because they got cancer or because they lost the baby. In that day, they will see all the designs of God, even the cancer and the miscarriage, as love. I think that Thomas, in his own way, responded to Jesus' words with faith. He said to his fellow disciples in verse 16, Let us also go that we may die with him. And we like to pick on Thomas. He was the skeptic. Doubting Thomas is how we know him. But we should also think of him as the one who, at this really difficult moment, personally suffering for suffering grief at hearing that his friend had died and at this difficult moment where Jesus was saying that we should go to Judea where there seemed to be certain death ahead at this difficult moment Thomas doubting Thomas Thomas was not doubting but was faithful to Jesus He didn't say to his fellow disciples, well, if Jesus is going there, let's go somewhere else or let's stay put. Rather, Thomas says, in effect, let us die to ourselves. Let us take up the cross and let's follow our master. What faith. What faith Thomas has. He's an example for us. He thought that on the other side of their journey was certain death. And it would be for Jesus, but not yet. But for Thomas, he was ready to go and follow Jesus, even if it meant his own death. He was ready to walk into the pain following Jesus. And that is faith. To walk into the pain, into the trial, into the affliction, following Jesus. That's all, friends. That's 
all God expects of you in the trial. He's not asking you to follow someone else. He's not asking you to go alone. He's asking you in the trial, will you have the faith to follow Jesus? That's all he's asking. And don't you know that Jesus leads you to a good place? And so we can trust him. God is doing more than we could ever think in all the trials that he brings into our lives. And we see it right here. Here's a trial that was brought in the life of Mary and Martha and all these friends of Lazarus. And they had no idea at the beginning what God was doing. And one of the purposes of Jesus going and raising Lazarus in this whole episode, one of the purposes is it would be the spark which made the Jews hate Jesus so much that once and for all they would kill him. This is the spark that finally brought it to arrest Jesus and his eventual death. God is doing more than we could ever think in all the trials he brings into our lives. And two purposes of God's purposes for our pain are the display of the glory of God. Now, you have to have a God-centeredness to your life to hear that as good news. But love is giving you what's needed most. And what these disciples needed most and what Mary and Martha needed most at that moment was not the healing of Lazarus. What they needed most was a magnificent display of the glory of God. And perhaps the reason why God is taking you through this trial and this pain is is so that you would see God to be strong and powerful and merciful and loving in the hardest moments. That's one purpose, the glory of God in our pain. And the other purpose that God has for all believers in affliction is the growth of our faith. Because if you have a shield of faith, you can walk through this world that wounds in a way that you couldn't otherwise protect it. So like Thomas, though we don't know what's to come tomorrow in our own Judeas, we know that the right way is to follow Jesus, our good shepherd, wherever he leads. And that's what God is calling to us to do in our affliction, to follow our master, to follow our good shepherd, who is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty truths that you have shown us in these opening verses of chapter 11. We don't take them lightly. We know these things are hard things. Nevertheless, the truths that you give us are comforting as well. Father, we pray that you would make us more God-centered so that we would see our daily afflictions in light of eternity and what they're achieving for us and the, the power that's manifest through them. And we pray that you'd give us a kind of glad-heartedness even in the tears, even in the hurt, 
for the faith that you're producing in us. Father, in some ways, it's, it's a scary prayer to ask you to increase our faith. Because we know so much of our lives, you know, those good times in our lives, our faith didn't increase. And so we know that by asking you to increase our faith, one way you might answer that is through difficult circumstances. But we don't walk alone. We follow our, our Master, our Father, our Shepherd, your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, we ask that you'd lift our gaze and help us to cast our eyes on the One who saves and the One who leads us beside pleasant pastures even when the world falls around falls down around us and so we do ask father increase our faith in jesus name we pray amen thank you for listening to this message from treasuring christ church in athens georgia Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.